You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema, and today we are talking about an interesting topic, trauma at the end of life. And my guest is Rachel Jordan. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Saul. I'm happy to be here with you. Where did you grow up? Uh, well, I grew up where I still reside. My family settled in the Pacific Northwest a generation ago. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I crossed the Columbia River to commute to Vancouver, Washington, where I serve as a hospital chaplain. And this is the tribal land of the Chinook, the Multnomah, the Tualatin, the Kalapuya, and the Mwala people. So how did your journey to chaplaincy begin? started in 2014 uh, when I became a neurotrauma patient. I was in the ICU, and that was where I first met a chaplain. Um, what led up to that was an incident of domestic violence, wherein my estranged and now ex-husband attempted to abduct one of my children. I stopped him by getting on top of his car, and he proceeded to turn the car on and floor it around a corner and hit the brakes. So I flew off, I hit my head, which resulted in a subdural hematoma, which is a clot, a blood clot in my brain. I had a collapsed lung, trauma to my chest, a number of facial fractures, and a pretty sore knee at the end of it. I was rushed emergently to the hospital where I had a craniotomy and I was in the neurotrauma unit where I had um, I had a chest tube, a bolt in my brain, an endotracheal tube, um, and a number of machines keeping me alive. But my nurses would occasionally unfasten my restraints. I was in restraints so that I didn't... Uh, pull on any of the tubes and they'd unfasten them and give me a felt marker and I would write what I wanted to share. And mostly I wrote about my kids, but I also wrote the word Jesus. And the nurse said, do you want to talk to a chaplain? And I didn't know what a chaplain was. And you would think now that I am a chaplain, I said, oh yes, of course. But really my knee jerk reaction was I that sounds really weird. I don't think I want to talk to a chaplain. Mm. Uh, but I also didn't have, I didn't have anyone to sit with me and I was lonely. So I said, okay, <laughs> you, you send a chaplain in. And um, of course it was wonderful. I liked the chaplain and I was like, okay, please keep sending these people. And uh, sometime later, um, all the tubes were removed. My recovery was going well. And um, chaplains were still visiting. And by the time I was able to talk again, um, I was really overwhelmed by my situation. Uh, because not only did I lose my health, I'd, I'd really lost my housing, my family. Um I, I was, again, reunited with my children, of course, but um, it, 
But at that time, I felt very separated from them. I spoke with the chaplain, Bob, and the most powerful thing he did for me was to sit and cry. And he said, as a father, my heart is breaking for you. And when he did that, it was his tears that invited me into feeling my own emotions and invited me back into the community of humans, helped me feel human again. Mm. And I thought, here I am. I've got to come back and be alive all over again. And if I have to do that, I want to live my life differently. And I want to do what's been done for me that changed my life. And so that's what sparked my interest in chaplaincy. And it's mm. taken a number of years to bring that to fruition. You know, I'm really sorry for what you had to go through there. But also for you writing Jesus and the nurse equating that to bringing a chaplain in to speak to you, that is also quite um quite, quite a, a profound moment there. So when you wrote Jesus, what, uh, what was going through your mind in a sense? Well, I'm very grateful to that nurse and their attentiveness. Uh, in doing that and even in taking the time to to do that. Um, and I have my lit, my stack of papers that I wrote on. I don't remember actually writing Jesus, but knowing myself, I, I'm sure that I was reaching out for some comfort, reaching out for the sacred and holy at that time. And I'm really glad that I have a record of it. Yeah. You know, many patients and, uh, and chaplains in this kind of this difficult situations, um, people normally struggle to connect with the patient. Uh, what did Bob do? Uh, apart from crying, what did he do that really deeply connected and resonated with you that allowed his ministry uh, to penetrate through and you having this amazing... Um, patient-chaplain relationship? Well, by the time I met Bob, I, I uh -huh. was able to talk. So I, I do think that helped. Um, now, having been on the other side of things and seeing that it is difficult, especially in the ICU, to connect. Um, I think a lot of it was Bob's gentility and mm -hmm. warmth and calmness. I remember saying throughout our conversations, you're so calm because I, I, what I know now is he was helping me regulate my own emotions and my, my stress response. Mm. Um, and he was willing to kind of enter my, my little world. We could talk about anything. I was, um, I was very pleased that he would talk to me about Jane Austen and kefir as a drink. That's what I was drinking those days. Mm -hmm. And so we could talk about whatever I, I brought up. Um, yeah. And it is yeah. that ministry that motivated you to become a chaplain. Yeah. So I, um, I had a background in ministry also. Um, but as a woman in my previous denomination, there was nowhere for me to actually practice my 
my ministry as a pastor. Um, and, and also I had three different chaplains. I connected the most with Bob, but two of them were women. And that was significant too, uh, because I thought, oh, maybe, maybe this is something I can do. And I spent a long time reflecting on that experience and writing about it. Um, and so two years late, it was two years later that I uh, enrolled in seminary. And Bob also made himself available to me to chat every once in a while um, as I contemplated that. And I was able to do my internships and residency at the same hospital where I was treated as well, which was difficult, but also very profound. So, yeah, I was going to ask, what was that like? I mean, to go back to a place where you probably almost died too. What was yeah. that like for you? Yeah. I, I felt so much shame when I went back. Um, I actually didn't, I didn't think I was going to be able to complete my internship. I actually pulled one of my supervisors aside um, to talk to them about that because part of the application process, as you know, uh, is to write your life story. And I was like, oh, these people, they know what I'm like. And I felt crazy when I was a patient. That was kind of one of the, the symptoms of my injuries. Um, and I was like, everyone here must know I'm crazy. Why would they want me here? And I don't think I can handle it. And I thought about just leaving <laughs> at the time. Um, but I didn't. Um, and I think developing relationships with, with my team, with the hospital, people in other disciplines as well, is what helped the most. But of course, also in the residency, being able to talk and write about the things that are coming up for me. Um, but I, I pretty much continuously had, um, you know, a trauma response, a response of stress. Um, and I kind of had to work that out in my theology of, of uncovering that, that God is here, even in my distress, God didn't leave. Mm. Um, and I am accepted even in my duress. Yeah. You know, when I listened to the miracle of your recovery uh, in that hospital, and then when you went back uh, to do your clinical pastoral education, but you, you felt some sense of shame. Where did the shame come from? That came from a lot of places. Yeah. Um, with, with the brain injury in particular, um, you know, it was not being able to articulate my thoughts at times. Mm. My bachelor's degree is in speech communication. So, you know, that's a source of pride for me. Um, and I couldn't do it. I had to learn that I could walk, that I could open doors. Um, so it was kind of like going through stages of development again. Yeah. Um, and, and the shame of, of domestic violence. Um, I was working really only occasionally, but working with people who were part of my care team and they remembered me because they'd gone 
above and beyond for me to take care of me. Um, and even um, as a patient, not always being dressed and having procedures done when I didn't have clothes on um, and didn't really have a choice. Um, I think that one in particular, I, it, it feels silly because I'm like, nobody would remember that, but I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I find it really uh, powerful in a sense that a place where you went and got your physical healing is also a place where you found your um, calling. You know, it's, it's like a sense of completion. And that leads us to the conversation today, the intersection between trauma and end-of-life care. How do you define trauma for this conversation? Yeah, I think of trauma in in several different ways. Um, broadly speaking, I'm informed by Gabor Mati's definition that trauma is not an event, but an inner injury. It, it's a lasting rupture or split within the self due to difficult or hurtful events. And that's another source of shame that I... I felt um, as a patient, um, I think some of that comes from knowing that I was surviving uh, because of machines and also the care of others. And I think what kind of softens that blow is is when people do take the time to, you know, they people took the time to say my name or tell me what they were doing make a referral to a chaplain, make a joke, tease me about something. Um, but some of it is, um, I think, necessary. Um, my body was a workspace for other people. And my response to that um, was feeling like I was this specimen to be observed. I was undergoing all these really advanced scientific treatments it felt very objectifying. There was one time where I woke up to a crowd of people working on me and I knew they were working on me, but I didn't know what they were doing, or what part of my body they were working on. Um, and that objectification for me as a woman is something that I would normally feel um, through the male gaze. And so this was similar and also different. Uh, because it was, um, it was kind of this separation from my body, and I eventually kind of started seeing myself not through my own eyes, but through the eyes of medical personnel who had a job to do. It violated my my trust in my own experiences, and that's kind of the trauma piece for me. Mm. Is that's what created the inner injury for me. So how have your experience of trauma informed your practice in end-of-life care? One of the things that we often consider at the end of life um, from a spiritual care perspective, from a chaplain perspective, is when people experience conflict. That could be conflict within themselves. It could be within their relationships or even within their relationship to the divine. Uh, people want to have peace and feel like they can conclude their life 
and be at ease. Uh, but when there's when there's trauma, that's an enormous sense of conflict that people can feel. And it can come from so many places. Um, it can result from injuries, like mine did. It could be from prolonged illness and even the need for medical care. So one of the things that I get to do as a chaplain is uh, bear witness to people's wounds. And that's a term that comes from Judith Herman's book on trauma and recovery. And bearing witness, uh, it's spiritual wound care. Nurses provide wound care and keep wounds clean and with fresh bandages. Um, and what I do is is simil similar, but it's also different because I'm looking at it with a different lens. I'm not, I'm not there to touch physically. I just acknowledge the depths of the pain that someone has endured. It's coming in with kind of a sense of, of awe and respect and wonder. And not so much for the scars themselves, but for the person that's holding those scars. And so I think the the beauty of that work is helping people become reunited with themselves and holding those scars in their rightful place. The, the scars are not the main event. They're not the whole story. They're part of it. And your identity is what's really important. And those scars can shape that, but they aren't the only piece. Well, another one that can come up is even just in losing the ability uh, to care for oneself. In our normal day-to-day -day lives, a person's daily routine might start with their alarm going off in the morning and making a fresh pot of coffee or making some tea. But when you're requiring care, it might revolve around the change in, in staff schedule and having your vitals taken and getting a dose of pain medication. Um, those are significant losses for people. I had one patient who, when I came in to visit, I did everything wrong for her. Um, it was how I sat, where I sat, what I said. I mean, it just, it kind of didn't matter what I did. I realized it was going to be upsetting to her. Um, she didn't want me to leave. I always, I'm always upfront that, you know, I don't have to be here if you don't, don't want me here. Um, but it became clear as we were chatting that it, it wasn't me in particular. It's that I was her safe person to talk to about what it was like to have people coming in all the time. And she said, this is supposed to be my home and it doesn't feel like my home. Um, and yeah, that's significant. And, and the next time we chatted, she apologized because she felt like she'd been mean. And I validated her, her thoughtfulness and care with that. But I also let her know that, that I didn't experience her as mean. And we kind of talked about where, where that belief came from, that if she shares what she needs and how she feels that that might 
be mean and something that would not be acceptable. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saul Berman. We continue our conversation with Rachel Jordan. Uh, could you give us uh, the types of trauma that you've encountered in end-of-life care? Yeah, so we were kind of um, discussing uh, trauma as a source of conflict that could come from an injury or illness. Um, I also observe trauma resulting from atrocities, and that's from from person to person violence. That's different than a trauma resulting from uh, like a natural disaster. Trauma can also result from from racism. Um, and I also observe religious trauma. And that's a lot of what I work with, too. There are so many more sources, but those are kind of the ones that I'm prepared to talk about this morning. Um, so trauma from atrocities, um, that person-to-person violence, I think, is is so painful. Uh, to endure something like that, to intentionally, to know that someone intentionally wanted to to hurt or even kill um, someone. It's it's dehumanizing, I think, to the core of who we are as, as people. And not only that, but then people are, who've already endured an atrocity now are may also be facing the trauma of other people's responses to that original event. And often when that's done in a religious setting, uh, the focus from religious figures uh, is asking that victim survivor, well, have you forgiven them? Uh. How are you reconciling with, uh, with that perpetrator? That, brings me um a lot of sadness when i hear that happening to people because what that does is it overlooks um that that pain that deep pain that the victim survivor experienced in feeling violated Mm. and the only reconciliation that i'm concerned about as a chaplain is that reconciliation with the self in those kinds of situations, because maybe that person just needs to set a boundary and not and not think about the perpetrator, but they do need to think about themselves um, because it can feel like a betrayal within oneself. So, so those are the kinds of things that I wanna talk about when someone's endured an atrocity. And if they wanna bring up the perpetrator, of course, we can talk about that, uh, but it's never something that that I would initiate with someone. Another form is trauma resulting from racism. And I'm a white person. I am a white settler here in the Pacific Northwest. And so for me, something that is important is to keep in mind that yes, I'm meeting my patient where they're at, but they're also meeting me where I'm at. 
And I have to be honest about that. Um, there was one time where I had a family member who I wanted to work with and she initially said, no, I don't, I don't want to talk to you. Like, leave me alone. And, and that I knew that was her knee jerk reaction and that she might feel differently even in just a few minutes. And so I also knew that she really needed care. And I was kind of torn because I wanted to honor her, her consent, you know, to receive care. But I also didn't want her to go without receiving care. And so she was uh, an indigenous woman. And this was while I was still working at the hospital where I'd been treated. And for me, that that meant going up to the third floor where I'd been treated, taking elevator A back all the way, walking down this all too familiar hallway. And as I walked down that hallway, I was just replaying all these um, difficult events of when, when I had been a patient. And I was kind of like, what am I doing? Why, why do I keep putting myself through this torture of replaying all these scenes? And, and I realized then that that was what put me in touch with my tenderness to remember that when I was fragile and vulnerable, I had people step up for me. I had people hold my hand and tell me what to expect, what to look out for in the medical system to encourage me to say, I like you, you're sassy. Hey, you're smart. That's going to help you in your recovery, things like that. And I thought, you know, I could do that. I can be in my tenderness when I meet this woman again. And I knew what I needed to say to her. I needed to acknowledge that I am a white person living on stolen native land because I had a suspicion that that was what the knee-jerk reaction was for her. And it's very presumptive for me to think that I'm going to be a spiritual healer for people um, in this circumstance. And so for me, often, you know, that that's kind of the extent of my intervention, that I'm acknowledging my role, my family's role, throughout history in relation to other people and then they can teach me what they want me to know and I can proceed in humility and learn about their situations and hear their pain and that's where the healing is. Another big uh, source of trauma is religious trauma and I think of that in two different ways. Um, it there's always an element of exclusion to it and it generally generally people experience both i don't know that they can necessarily be separated but it's it's being excluded from the life of their religious community and having one's expression of faith dismissed um in hospice, I see this most commonly with people who are divorced or they're part of the LGBTQI community. So for me as a chaplain, to approach them and validate their faith, say, just acknowledge that they have a relationship with God, that they are spiritual people, 
maybe they don't have a belief in God, but they're spiritual. That is valid. It may also mean that I'm going to advocate for them to have an anointing of the sick by a priest, if that's part of their tradition. And helping that, that helps them reunite with their own identity. Um, of course, that's the anointing in particular is an important uh, religious sacrament as well. And that's kind of the conversation that they would have more with the priest than with me. And there can also be trauma in not being able to attend a service. People on hospice often are not very mobile. And my hope for more religious communities is that they would make their services more accessible for people. Uh, But that's a huge loss when people have defined their lives through their faith and they can no longer attend and they no longer see their friends at church. They can't participate in in the rituals and communal gatherings that have um, that have shaped maybe their whole life. Mm-hmm. So coming in as a chaplain, sometimes I help people reunite with their faith. Well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Berman. We continue our conversation with Rachel Jordan. Uh, before the break, you're talking about all these different kinds of trauma and what you're doing as a chaplain to remedy. But do you have some suggestions for uh, clinicians who work in end-of-life care on how they can navigate this intersection between trauma and end-of-life care? Um, one thing that you highlighted deeply is listening, understanding the person and their narrative. Could you continue with that? Yeah, I I noticed that even just moving from the hospital setting to hospice care, I listen even more. And that is the place that I always start. Um, we've worked... Uh, religious trauma into something we look at for our initial assessments as chaplains in my department. But again, it's not something that I bring up with people. It's something that I listen for. I listen for those um, areas of exclusion that they might have felt. Often family members will share with me um, some of the background that I need to know. And I think it's it's letting people share as they feel open to sharing, letting other, letting the survivors uh, lead the conversation um, and be the teacher. Mm. They're the experts on trauma yeah. and they're, they're enlightening me. And if I can hold them with this sense of wonder and awe and respect and dignity, that's healing and people feel that 
I also am always learning about the assumptions that I hold as a chaplain, as a human being. Um, I let people know that if I say something offensive, please tell me, please let me know because it it could be in, in any number of the areas that we've discussed. Um, something I've also learned is just because I'm the chaplain doesn't mean that I'm going to participate in a religious ritual from someone from a different culture or from a different faith because those are sacred and private. Uh, so having the humility to know that there may be places that I'm I'm not welcome and that's that's okay. That's good for me to respect that. Yeah. And also beyond um beyond listening, I remember in, in one of the hospices uh, many years ago that I worked for, uh this patient was nonverbal. So she had a male CNA that went, you know, to provide personal care for her. But every time he was there providing personal care, she was restless. Mm. Only to find that in her background, there was an experience of violence, you know, from a man. Mm. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it was something she could not verbalize. But the CNA noticing this pattern and trying to dig deeper and then re- having a female CNA go there to provide care was really what the woman needed. Mm. And she was unable to verbalize that. So sometimes we have to read for nonverbal cues too to help people uh, who are navigating trauma at the end of life. Well, as you're sharing that story, it made me wonder, you know, not every CNA would notice that that woman was was becoming anxious. And I wonder what in that in that person helped them, what created that sensitivity and awareness for them. Because I think uh, that these experiences of suffering, they etch deeper into a person's soul, both creating and requiring tenderness. And that's a very tender thing to, uh, to offer a different provider. Maybe it came from work experience, but maybe it came from his own experience of, of suffering. I think it takes deep tenderness to truly see the wounds of another. It was during my chaplain residency that I came to understand that when the tenderness of death entered me, it did not leave. When I pray with people, I ask if they usually hold hands when they pray. That's not something that some people have been asked in a long time. And for someone who feels ashamed, I'm offering them a sacred or divine hand of dignifying grace. And because I feel so strongly about mutuality in our relationship, I'm reminded that they too are offering me a sacred or divine hand of dignifying grace. And the never-ending sadness that I was once so afraid of has found its place now that I'm the one who sits at the bedside of others and I help them release their tears because even as our wounds and our roles are different, I believe that our healing comes when we cry together as a community. Powerful words. Uh, Thank you very much, Rachel, for coming on the show. 
Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you this morning. That was Chaplain Rachel Jordan. And thank you for listening. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.